Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. My name is John McDonald. This episode features a special guest from Technical Safety BC. He is the organization's new president and lead executive officer. Our conversation covers their focus on safety at scale, how they are leveraging machine learning to serve their members, and a whole lot more. Our conversation starts now. My full name is Philip Gota, but I go by Phil Gota, and uh, I'm absolutely honored to be the next uh, president and lead executive officer of Technical Safety BC. I've been with the organization for almost 13 years. I started in January of 2009, and I have not ceased to grow and develop and learn, and I think hopefully thrive in my time here, and I'm looking forward to continuing to do that in the years to come. Awesome, Phil. Well, I really appreciate your time today and looking forward to this conversation. One of the things that did stick out to me was what you mentioned, that you've been with the organization for uh, just about 13 years. And I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to how that has impacted your development as a leader, especially as you're stepping into kind of this new role. You've it, It's great to see hiring within. It's usually a great statement about the culture of the organization. But can you uh, kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Well, uh, let me start by saying, I think we're a bit of a unique organization. So we are a independent, self-funded, delegated ad, uh, administrative authority. So it's, a, it's an interesting, shall I call it, kind of structure for an organization. We, we are responsible to a board of directors and we don't have any shareholders. And uh, the minister of the ministry that we're accountable to uh, appoints three members of the board, but the board then... Uh, self-appoints a number of other people um, through a matrix. And and why I go into that detail is that I believe that the authority model is one that has the ability to be innovative and responsive and accountable in a social service that we deliver. So that's the kind of organization we're in. And so I joined that uh, in 2009, having come out of 10 years of management consulting and spending a lot of time in operations in the force sector, mostly here in BC. I also dabbled in some startup work and fashioned myself as wanting to build a a little mini Jimmy Patterson at the holding company for different businesses because I love strategy. Anyway, uh, I joined this organization because I've always valued public service and I was really intrigued by the mandate and also the, um, the model, the administrative model. And when I joined in 2009, it was still very much in a, in a bit of a phase two startup environment. And then over time, as all organizations evolve, we, we started to develop our, our processes and our approaches and, and began to mature as an organization. And I think we are at a point now where the next phase is, is a lot about consolidating a bunch of the value that we've begun to create in the safety system um, and to, to really work towards safety at scale. So your question is, uh, how have I evolved? I know I went on a bit of a, uh, a journey there with that, but I've never stopped growing. I, I, I can firmly say that the executive I was in 2009 is not the executive I am today. I had the privilege to work with amazing colleagues and also with incredible um, former 
lead executive officers who've always valued leadership and development and growth. And, and so I've, I've moved along with the organization and, and really soaked it all up. Does it make the transition to a senior leadership role easier in that you've been there for a long time? Or does it create its own set of challenges because of the, uh, there may be concerns, but you know, new ideas, that kind, of, that kind of stuff. Do you have anything, any thoughts there? There's both. I think anyone going into, um, well, any new role, and then in this case, the, uh, the president role, there are things that are simpler because I understand the organization. And then there are, there are challenges. You know, I, I have every opportunity to hit the, hit the planks or hit the, what's that, hit the road running. There's also a lot of expectations that I do hit the road running and continue. And, you know, the peers that I've worked with for years, our relationship will, will change. Uh, it has to. That's part of the way it goes. And so there's some interesting storming and norming that goes on in that sort of situation. But we all have, we're all very mature and I think everyone understands that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that journey as well. One of the things, or you mentioned two things there in your last response about consolidation and, and scaling safety. And I don't know if that kind of falls into the next two quarters of your leadership there, but I wonder if you can kind of speak to what that first six months uh, of your role uh, is going to look like. Well, you know, we've all been in this pandemic. And uh, one of the things that the pandemic has done for most organizations and, and also for Technical Safety BC is it's really advanced our uh, digital transformation. We've always looked towards using more digital tools to be more effective and more efficient and better, better serve uh, the technical safety system that we oversee and all of its clients and participants. But that's just been so accelerated due to the pandemic. Um, so we have started things like tools for remote assessment. So our safety officers can now still assess physically, do an inspection physically, but they can also take photos from contractors and, and tradespeople. Uh, those tools need a lot of work. So there's value that's been initiated and, and more to be done. We've moved to online proctoring of exams, but the, you know, besides just proctoring the exams, there's how we book them and how there's uh, ability to do more and more self-serve. We, we all are online and we all go to websites to, to transact. And so there's a lot of things we've initiated there that we can and should continue. Those are some of the operational things and there are a number of other examples. I think what we also need to consider when we talk about safety at scale is there are many underprivileged and more remote communities. And so we, and then one of our imperatives is to make sure that safety is accessible for all. And that's a lot about leveling the playing field and reaching out to communities that are a bit more remote, may not have the resources or the ability and really helping them to understand what barriers to safety may exist in their area. It is about equity, effectiveness, and efficiency. And all of those are part of creating safety at scale. And we have, we've begun so many important initiatives in all of those areas. And so it is, as an organization develops and where we are in our journey, there's a lot of good work for us to do to, to bring, bring more and more of that home. You know, we have embraced 
machine learning. We've actually created some algorithm. Well, we didn't create it. We've, we've trained some algorithms that support us in understanding where there may be higher probability of undue hazard, where we could add more value to the certified individuals and the, the licensed contractors and the equipment owners. And so, you know, we have a very balanced approach with our safety office. We, we actually, there's a system that does 100% assessment. And then from that, we can create priorities on where best to send our resources to support. We've also embraced, you know, statistical methods. And, and so if we have a question about, for instance, RV parks and marinas would be maybe an example. And so we don't have to look at every one in the province to have a high confidence understanding of what the, the, the sort of risk challenges are in those areas. And, and so we can do a, a, you know, a statistically confident sample of it and, and do some analysis from that. So I think these are what, you know, I think something else that we do that supports the system and, and folks should have some confidence about is that we we look to good innovative and strong scientific rigor to really understand risk and and then obviously channel that risk back to all the participants in the system i just want to assure listeners and and readers that you know we we take a risk-based approach and we also understand that there are some important expectations that we satisfy for for assuring that technical systems and equipment are safe in the problems. I'm wondering if looking back on 2021, if there are a couple of highlights that stick out to you uh, within the organization, but is there anything that kind of sticks out internally within technical safety BC over the last year? Well, that, that is really what sticks out the most for us. Absolutely. There's the pandemic as I've and, and all of our way of adapting to that. You know, I think we also need to talk about all the climate events that not only we've seen here in BC, but we see them in the world. We've really increased our capability and our readiness internal to internally to be able to support both proactively and in in the response and afterwards in the building better. So that's a lot about connecting to emergency management and the local governments and the utilities, all of all of those uh, players that have a critical role in in getting communities ready, being in the response phase of it, and then also afterwards in building back. So in the Fraser Valley, there's a lot of, as they're cleaning up right now, there's a lot of building back and there's a lot of electrical equipment and boilers and gas equipment that needs to be, needs to be rebuilt and reinstalled. And so we're doing everything to be very uh, supportive and, and constructive in that. So we've done a lot of work to increase our readiness and our ability to serve in that area. That's for sure a highlight. And then also, we're looking looking further out. We've struck a team that is really trying to understand and do some research on the future impacts or even the present and the, and the accelerating impacts that this climate change will have on, on technical equipment. So um, how do we understand its, its exposure to climate change and how can we make it more adaptable and resilient to it going forward. So there's a lot of thinking going on there and work going on to to try and get ahead and be more proactive about it. The other area of change that I think we should also acknowledge is that there's been just a massive amount of social change in Canada and in the world. So, you know, the identification of unmarked graves of children at Indigenous residential schools, 
has absolutely solidified the uh, the past of our country. You know, and we've seen all kinds of social change in the world where we are really coming to learn about these long-held biases and inequities. And so that's something that our organization is embracing. I think it's a journey for every organization and every individual to take. And there's just a, a great deal of opportunity for, for all of us in it. So those are the highlights, our, our ability to adapt and change and learn, whether it's to the pandemic, uh, the climate change or social change. And those are the big highlights of the last year for me. What is your involvement or the organization's involvement with legislative change, let's say at the provincial or federal level? Like, are you guys advocating on behalf of, of membership on like, let's say equipment, can we adjust the GHG requirements for, you know, an excavator, you know, can you kind of elaborate on, on your role as safety legislation changes? Yes, absolutely. So there, there used to be this old analogy that was used. So, and I think it may fit here. Government steers the, the ship or the, the canoe, if you will. And, and we do a lot of the rowing in it, but what, is included in the rowing is we're a risk-based organization and we are also a knowledge-based organization. So we don't just go and, uh, and make sure that installations and equipment is safe. We, we work through a bunch of certified tradespeople and uh, licensed organizations and equipment owners and through utilities and other safety partners. And we, we do certify them. We we assure we we do an assurance model where we we enable them through knowledge and understanding and things like that. And so likewise, we we bring that body of knowledge to us as well, and we do policy analysis on behalf of the government. So they ask us sometimes to do certain, and and we also really gain deep understanding of current risks and future risks. And we absolutely we meet with the government partners, uh, I think it's quarterly, and um, constantly having a conversation with them about how codes, standards, and regulation would change. And likewise, government has its own policy. So Clean BC is a, a critical policy roadmap that has been developed. And, and so there will be a number of, of policies around greenhouse gas reductions and different changes in the province. And you know, gas equipment burns greenhouse gas and, and electrification is a big part of it. And so we're, we're part of that ecosystem. And, and so we will sometimes take policy from government and be part of the, the execution of it, if you will, or the rollout of it. I want to ask you a little bit about your professional background. You touched briefly on some entrepreneurial ventures and some other things beforehand, but I wonder if you can kind of just detail the steps that led, uh, led you up to your time at, at Technical Safety. Well, I started my career in the service. I um, was in the Royal Canadian Navy for 13 years, and uh, that's that's sort of how I came into uh, adulthood and and working life. And then I didn't didn't want to spend my whole career. I made that choice and branched away from it after that. And I decided to do a, an MBA, a Master's in Business Administration, as a bit of a transition tool. And so did that and and that was a real but you know it 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 really supported me in making the the transition into the business world and and after that i i spent as i said 10 years 
in consulting. Many MBAs come out, they either go into banking or consulting. Some of them go straight into industry, but a lot, at least in the 90s when I was doing it, that was where many of us ended up. And um, yeah, I ended up in the forest sector um, in operations and did a lot of theory of constraints and lean manufacturing and total quality management, all of the sort of practices of the day. Full value chain. I was in the forest just like I was in the mills and then paper mills as well. And, and even in some large uh, equipment, even helicopters and overhaul and things like that. So I had a really interesting experience. And then I, I sort of branched out on my own for the last sort of years of that decade with some pretty lofty dreams, but I, I've always loved strategy and and I felt, you know, supporting some small entrepreneurs and getting involved in, in some entrepreneurial ventures was something that I, I really wanted to do. So that was that was a great experience. And and then yeah, technical safety BC showed up as an opportunity. And and like I said before, I've always valued service and and you know, policy in some ways is some of the most complex and interesting strategy that there is to have. You're really doing it at a system level and at a society level. And then, like I said, the model here, the the administrative, delegated administrative authority model is incredibly intriguing because it's sort of it's self-funded. So you have to have some business acumen and 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 manage a business responsibly. And of course, we're not for profit and we have to create value for the, the people who pay for permits and licenses and certificates. And then you have to take some of that value and you don't give it to shareholders. You you plow it back into making the system better. And how do you do that again? And 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 I think that's we've done so much good work there. And like I say, we're really on the precipice of trying to create some some real scale. And the and the scale is effectiveness, it's efficiency, and it's also equity in the system. And and that's very much the next chapter. So that's that's a bit the arc of my journey. And um, I'm as committed and challenged and intrigued today as I was 13 years ago. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really keen and enthusiastic about, about the journey ahead. Is there something that's kept you at the organization specifically? Because, you know, it's not, you see a lot of transitioning careers, especially the shortening of the stops now, but uh, anything that sticks out? Well, I think there's two things that come to mind. One is the, the complexity of what we do is just so stimulating and interesting. And, and, you know, we have, we've created some values that I think work really hard. We've always said, so what, what, what are some values as an organization that we should really hold dear that they work hard for us? They, they're not sort of obvious values. And, and so we've always said that as a regulator, one thing we should hold as a value is to make the complex simple. And we foster confidence is our second or another value. They don't have a particular order. We adapt, and that's so critical in today's world. And then finally, we see genius and diversity. And, you know, that that keeps me here. I think those are incredible values for an organization. So it's incredibly stimulating and interesting. And then finally, I would say these values, they they attract incredible employees and, and individuals to the organization. So I've had the privilege over the years to work with incredibly dedicated and passionate people. I think we all realize that, yes, we are part of a safety system and about keeping people safe, but 
I think also many of us hold even the, the next level of impact dear as well. And that is that by fostering confidence in the system, which is all the certified individuals and the licensed entities and the equipment owners, and of course, us ourselves as the, the overseers and the administrators of that system, if we, if we can maintain and build that confidence consistently, that creates a, a foundation for social and economic development in the province. It's a, it's a basis upon which as a society in BC, we can grow. And that's incredibly interesting to me. One of the things I find most interesting is how leaders evaluate themselves from when they started out in a leadership role to where they are now. And I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to that what, and what you've seen in yourself in terms of maturity or how you've gone to leading and developing teams or culture. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit? You know, I think there is a difference between leadership and management. They're both critically important, but they're, they are different. Management, you, we've heard it many times, management is about measurement. So it, it is really about understanding the journey from point A to point B or how something is running and, and then obviously evaluating that and coming up with action and, and then implementing that action and did it improve and is it solving the issue? So it's a, it's a cycling type of exercise. And, and there are organizations that do it better and some that do it worse. So it is a not it is a critically important skill. And I think early in a leadership and development journey as a leader, we, we, we spend a lot of time in that area, as we should. And as one grows in one's leadership, the, the whole leadership part starts to become more prevalent and more sort of top of mind and in front of you. And, and all the just incredible complexities and challenges and rewards of working with people and understanding them and learning from them and finding out what motivates them and working with them to even determine in themselves sometimes what motivates them. I think often we don't quite understand what's driving ourselves. And, and so leadership is because as, as I developed uh, over the years and in my journey, the management is now less prevalent for what I do day to day. And the, the leadership and the working with people is, is more and more. And I think that's where, you know, there, there's that been that shift. And then also a lot of learning and development. It's an, it's an ongoing journey to lead and to be part of teams with people. Awesome. I think that's a great, powerful distinction you've made. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, to make sure that we hit our 30-minute uh, time limit here, I'm going to jump to the final four uh, here, if that's okay. These are questions we ask each interviewee. And I'm wondering if you can start off by telling me, what is your favorite book? So one that we've recently taken on is a book called Playing to Win. And it's uh, Roger L. Martin. And I'm forgetting the name of the other individual, but he was the... Um, the president and CEO of Procter and Gamble, and it's already a little bit older, but it is an incredible book on strategy. Really makes it simple, and it really says that you know strategy is very much about choices, and it creates a or provides a framework and for how to make choices and what choices to make. So anyone who's looking at strategy, I would strongly recommend you take a look at that. And then the other book I read recently. Um, it's a bit of a dire title, but it's called Reasons to Live uh, by Matt Haig. 
And it's basically Matt, it's, it's very vulnerable. And it's this individual, Matt, who talks about his journey with depression and um, anxiety disorder. And he writes it in the most sort of matter of fact and uses a lot of humor and a lot of metaphor and analogies. And it's just such an incredible window into mental health. And I think what it shows is that and, and confirms or affirms for me is that we're all on a spectrum in mental health and, and where we are in that spectrum is not static either, that we sort of ebb and flow in it. His story is definitely where he was quite severe and quite on one side of the spectrum. I found it very interesting to, to sort of understand that from a person who really lived it and, and in a way that was actually quite entertaining, believe it or not, he, he was able to make it sort of show to put a lot of humor into it and, and paint that. So, you know, again, I just said leadership is about dealing with or working with and being with people. And if we're all, we all have, we're all on a mental spectrum. And I think that's part of being human as well. So anyway, those are the two books that I've been very impactful for me in the last 12 months. Is there a piece of personal advice that comes to mind that's had a lot of impact or value to you? So much. It's so hard to pick one. If I could wrap it all up, uh, it's this, and it is to live is to lead. And so what that means for me and with all the different advice that I've had or had the privilege of receiving, you know, we all, we all have to lead, whether it's just leading our own lives or whether it's family or a community or some sort of volunteer work or an organization team or department we have to leadership is part of each and every one of us and and to live is really to lead and you know that's something that i hold and i think as leaders we imagine and create conditions for thriving and i sometimes have moments where i ask myself so are you thriving now phil or have you imagined something or a condition, or are you working towards something that's creating more thriving, whether it's just in my own life or in my family or at work? And that's kind of a model that I keep. And it's, it's a culmination of a lot of advice that to live is to lead. Is there an app could be on your phone, your computer, or a piece of software that you cannot live without? Well, it would be boring to say I can't live without my mail app, but there is an app. I, I love to ski. My daughter is in a, uh, a ski club and we uh, on grouse mountain and we we ski the parents together um and it's called slopes is the app and it's one of many out there and it's sort of track you, you turn it on when you start your ski day and it tracks all of your skiing and how much time you've wait you're waiting in line and how much time you're spending on lifts and um, how much time you're actually spending skiing and it, it actually has a little video of the map of the hill and you can replay it but it gives you sort of your average speed and your, your maximum speed, which is something you have to be careful with because everyone's trying to go just a little faster, which is not the safest thing to do. So you have to keep that in check. But it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been really neat to uh, just use it as, as a group of people and um, compare notes and, and really sort of review the, the amazing day. I think every day on the mountain is, is a great day. So. That's, that's the app that I've been using or discovered recently that I really enjoy. Tremendous. And the very last one for you here to a restaurant in BC. We love sushi in our family. 
and uh, my spouse works for public health and we go to this sushi restaurant on Lonsdale in North Vancouver. And we go there because, well, first we know that the health inspectors eat there. <laughs> and really it has five-star quality sushi. The restaurant itself is maybe three-star ambiance, but the, uh, the food is amazing. And um, it's called Hachihana. I think it's probably worth mentioning. So I really enjoy it. Thanks for stopping by From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. If you want to learn more about the interviewee, please check the web and social links provided in the video or listening platform description. Please send any feedback to info at businessexaminer.ca with the subject line podcast. We'll see you next week.